far inland from the frigid waters of the Rhine, past the coastal fells and down the broad plains to the west. There stands a hill, and it stands alone. All around it is a vast emptiness of both land and civilization. For miles and miles and miles, as far as the eye can see, the lowlands stretch onward. Here and there, groves of aspen and birch trees huddle together and brace themselves against the winds that eternally sweep from west to east, while languid rivers twist and wind across the landscape. Solitary herdsmen guide their livestock from pasture to pasture between the tiny villages that dot the plains, each settlement keeping more or less to itself. Save for an Ahwaite warlord's ambitions give rise to bands of marauders, embarking on a seasonal dance of raid and counter-raid between the disparate realms. Indeed, the Hwait, the people of that land, were as eager for glory won in battle as any raiders from neighboring Keldroon off the coast. Leading up to the hill in the midst of that endless stretch of gently swaying grass is a road, neat and orderly. It runs in a straight line from the summit of the hill down to the southwest its ancient cobbles overrun with bluestem and ryegrass as it fades into the distance beneath a sea of green. It is unlike any other road in the plains, where at most a traveler may hope to find a path of packed dirt or a meandering wildlife trail. Were you to follow that road up the slope of the hill, where the tree line falls back as the elevation rises, you would find a monument long lost to time. Disguised under the cover of woody shrubs, tall grass, and twisted ash trees, stands a fortress. The outer curtain wall is sprawling and perfectly rectangular, conforming the earth to the architect's desires rather than following the natural curves of the hillside. Packed earth ramparts can still be clearly made out by the discerning eye, overgrown by brush as they were. The wooden elements of the structure had long since rotted away, but the earthworks still stand in a silent vigil, watching over the surrounding lands. One can stand atop them and observe exactly what an ancient soldier, tired at the end of a shift on watch, may have once seen. The empty, untamed expanse, sprawling all around a small, resolute bastion of order. Within the rectangular walls, the foundations of buildings stand in neat rows at equal intervals, perhaps barracks for an army that once lived here. In stark contrast to the earthworks, a single dense, squat tower of stone rises shamefully in the center of the fortress, grasping with avarice at the sky it cannot reach. Its masonry, in stark contrast to the earthen fortifications surrounding it, marks it as a relic from another era, long after the fortress had been initially constructed. The redoubt had been built and abandoned and reclaimed and abandoned again. Perhaps a new owner would rediscover it once more, seeing a prize worth restoring. However, they would do well to understand the fortification's history before undertaking such a venture. Welcome to a world very much like our own, but with a crucial difference. In this world, folklore is rooted in stark reality. My name is John Kernett, 
and I'll be guiding you through stories of strange events, close encounters, political conflicts, and tragic history, all set in a unique world that blends reality and mythology. This is the Wayfarer's Compendium. The night sky was cold and clear, and the moon shone brightly overhead. Restless soldiers and apprehensive commoners gathered in a loose circle around a stack of logs and tinder. Between them and the unlit pyre, a woman of middling age, dressed in mourning clothes, stood somberly with a young man at her side. The man did not wear mourning clothes. His tunic was white, and his cloak was a richly dyed red. He held a torch aloft, staring into the mound of timber with an unreadable expression. A priest took up an old hymn, and the congregation uneasily joined in. Four warriors marched slowly up to the pyre in formation, carrying a litter between them. Upon the litter, an aged man lay lifeless and still his face serene, and his arms crossed over his chest. As the chant reached a crescendo, the warriors placed the corpse atop the pile. The young man stepped forward and lit the tinder. The flames licked at the branches, growing to a conflagration that bathed the onlookers in a golden glow as it consumed the body. Wordlessly, the young man turned and strode away into the darkness of night. In the year 287 North Tide, the aldermen of Gebridol had passed into the Hall of the Dead. His funeral pyre burned bright and tall, and that same night his son, Werid, a youth only 17 years of age, claimed his late father's titles and lands as his own. The succession was uncontested by the more distant branches of the alderman's family, and administration of the realm continued on uninterrupted. The meager taxes and tithes of the surrounding villages were collected by the new alderman's warriors and brought back to his great hall on the plains of Gebrin, where young Werid sat in uncharacteristic contemplation. Unlike his father before him, the young ruler was a brash man, quick-tempered and easily moved to action. He had watched in frustration over the years as his father patiently received news of other lands ruled by other aldermen and petty kings without action. He had stewed in anger as wars were waged and battles fought just past the realm's borders, as slights and insults were delivered to his father's hall under the guise of diplomacy, as the aldermen had simply endured and protected his own rather than respond in kind. That would not be the fate of his own regime. He was determined, though his seat of power was tenuous in the turbulent wake of the larger kingdoms surrounding it, to take wealth and glory by force. 
and, as fate would have it, he found a chance to do so. He was on a hunting expedition with a small number of his thanes, far from their home. The vast plains had given way to scattered woodlands where dense copses of trees huddled together amidst the windswept fields. Far in the distance, the forest grew more heavy as it approached a solitary hill that towered high above the surrounding emptiness. The land was fair and green in the warmth of spring, teeming with life and rich with game for hunting. Where had made a decision, an innocent, unwitting decision of seemingly little consequence, but one that would nevertheless define his future. With their hounds at their side, the riders made their way towards the summit. The trees gave way to rocky crags and windswept grass as they coursed upward along the gentle slope. A strange sight awaited them. Nestled within a shell of spring flowers and black currant shrubs was an earthen bulwark. Wared rode alongside it, following its edge until it sharply turned at a right angle. All at once, the confusing sight snapped into clarity. It was a fortress. The wall, at first glance in natural formation, formed a perfect rectangle along the hilltop. As the riders circled to the far side of the hill, more and more elements emerged from the veil of nature obscuring them, an opening where a gate may have once stood. The overgrown cobbled road running in a perfect line down the far side of the hill. Through the open portal leading into the ancient fortress, the overgrown remains of buildings still stood in defiance of the elements, their foundations solid despite their age. The thanes dismounted and walked amongst the ruins, marveling at the vast scale of the construction project. In its day, it must have housed a positively enormous army by the standards of the time. Wared remained mounted, his eyes distant. Where his warriors saw a relic from times long gone by, a curiosity at most, he saw a grand vision. This was no mere hall, the like of which his father and his father's enemies ruled from. This was a stronghold from which he could extend his power far beyond the borders of his minor realm. The fortification was large enough to house not only his cadre of warriors, but an entire army. The packed earth ramparts were not the simple wooden defenses that might protect a village from a party of raiders, but a formidable defense built to withstand massed assaults. It would require work, that was certain, but once restored, this would be the base of his power. The migration was not a pleasant one. Few were willing to abandon their homes and livelihoods, but what choice did they have? The threat of the cruel alderman's warriors was enough to force their hands, so, with no other option, they took their herds and made the trying journey southward to the fortress. The reconstruction began. The decrepit ruins of the massive building in the center of the fortress were torn down, and a tower of stone was erected atop its foundations. The curtain wall along the perimeter of the hilltop was cleared of debris and foliage, while stakes were embedded in the soft loam beneath it to fend off any attempts to scale it. New warriors, drawn by the call to arms and the promise of glory, flocked to Wared's banners. His fire burned brighter, while all around him the people suffered at his hand. Though he had promised them succor once the walls were cleared and the tower completed, 
Their hopes were dashed, and he reneged on his word. His thanes drove the laborers down the hill, clearing the road and dredging the overgrown ditches by its sides. As they toiled in the late summer heat, their labors, it seemed, had no end. One night, as the alderman and his thanes caroused and drank within the walls of the tower, something strange happened. One of his masons, a solidly built man, forty-odd years of age, sober and sensible, claimed the unimaginable. seen a ghost. He had been walking near the outer wall when she appeared before him. She was beautiful, graceful, timeless, garbed in a pale robe. A haunting lament followed her as she keened, the tears streaming down her face from empty, eyeless sockets. Then, all at once, she was gone. The rumor spread like wildfire. Terror coursed through the ranks of the superstitious peasantry, but their circumstances remained unchanged. Any who attempted to desert were caught, dragged back to the redoubt, and flogged within an inch of their life. The already beleaguered denizens of the fortress were at the end of their rope, but Warid remained unchanged as well, living luxuriously in his high hall. More claims emerged as farmers, porters, even the alderman's own warriors claimed to have seen the specter for themselves. On their own, the stories may have died down and left the aldermen to restore order. If the stories were on their own. The first to die was the mason. He was found hanging from a tree near the base of the hill, his face purple and lifeless. The event shook the fortress to its core, but the aldermen remained obstinate and apathetic preferring to keep to the central tower and entertain himself with wine and concubines. Days would go by without a sign of him, and servants whispered gossip about what he was doing in private. One soldier threw down his spear and fled during the night's watch, only to be dragged back and interrogated. Pale and shivering, he pleaded to be left to go, claiming that the woman in white was coming for him. He was flogged and imprisoned for desertion. When he was found hanging in his cell, all hell broke loose. The people revolted overrunning the soldiers, those who hadn't either deserted or joined the rebellion at any rate, and besieged the alderman's tower. They broke down the doors and rushed up the stairs, swords in hand, and found Wared waiting for them, hanging from the rafters, his face purple and bloated.
long centuries before the aldermen of Gebertal ever set foot upon that lonely hilltop, there once stood a grove of trees, ancient and untouched by axe or fire. In a clearing at the center of the grove, one ash tree towered above the rest. Its branches stretched up to grasp the sky, and its canopy spread high above its neighbors. Nestled amongst its tangled roots, a simple, unadorned altar of pale stone lay upon the ground. And upon the altar, offerings of food and carved idols were left. It was a sacred place, and an air of timelessness surrounded it. Within the grove lived a seeress. She was a prophetess and a wise woman, and those who lived in the nearby villages often came to her for guidance and medicine. She cast auguries and cleansed them of evil spirits with rituals, potions, and poultices in exchange for food and other supplies. Though the seeress's face was unlined and youthful, her knowledge and demeanor spoke to a much greater age. In many ways, she was as timeless as the grove that she tended. For many years, she lived there in peace. On a warm summer morning, a pilgrim arrived seeking guidance. He had come from the village of Furmen to the west, journeying on foot across the plains and up the hill to the Cirrus's grove. His reasons for doing so have been lost to time. Perhaps he was ill, perhaps he sought counsel, or perhaps he was merely making an offering at the foot of the ash tree. We can only speculate. The stories that have survived make no mention of it. Whatever the cause, he arrived at the grove to find the Cirrus somber, still, and forlorn. She did not sing the hymns that the villagers had learned from her, nor did she tend to her garden, nor did she speak upon his arrival. When he inquired as to the cause of her dismay, she remained silent. He waited uneasily as each heavy moment dragged on. Eventually, she spoke. She told him that he must return home at once, carrying a message. His people, and all those who lived near them, must take all they could carry upon their backs and travel east to the sea. From there they must take to the waters and cross to the Isle of Keldrun. All that could not be carried with them would be lost. The pilgrim was taken aback and shaken to his core by her dire warning. He returned to Fermetin and repeated her prophecy to all who would listen but few heeded the Cirrus's words. The elders deliberated on the message, hemming and hawing over what would be left behind and whether any threat was truly looming over their home. Her reputation waned as sentiment turned against her. To leave behind all that they had worked so hard to build, their homes and lives, their flocks and herds, their crafts and professions, it was a terrible proposition. In the end, most stayed. The pilgrim, and all who would listen, took their families with all that they could carry upon their backs and fled eastward to the sea. As dawn broke the following morning, the seeress saw smoke rising into the sky on the western horizon. The soldiers came quickly, marching in rows of four up the hill. They were foreigners, olive-skinned and girded in armor of chain and leather, with bright cloaks and shining plumed helmets. Each carried a long spear with a short, broad sword belted at his side. 
At the head of the column rode a warlord and his lieutenants upon dark horses, wearing armor formed of resplendently gilded strips of iron, layered like a fish's scales. The commander ordered his men to fell the grove and use its timber to construct a fortress from which he could dominate the barbarian lands surrounding it. Though the seeress pleaded and fought, the warlord only laughed and commanded that she be taken as his concubine. She wept bitterly as the first strokes of the axe landed upon the trees of the sacred grove, starting from the outside in. Silent and resolute, the ancient ash tree waited as the woodsman's axes worked through the grove towards it. The construction proceeded rapidly. Bulwarks of packed earth were mounded high around the edge of the hill and squared off to form an impenetrable curtain wall. Logs were sawn into planks and layered into gates and battlements. Foundations of barracks were laid. And day by day, the grove grew smaller until only the sacred ash tree remained. That night, when the hour was long past midnight, and even the most vigilant guards were lulled to near sleep, the seeress slipped the ropes that bound her and took them with her to the ash tree. Whispering a prayer to the spirits of the earth and sky that guided her, and laying a curse upon the cruel men who had destroyed her world, she climbed the tree's branches and did the only thing left in her power. The soldiers awoke the next morning to find the prophetess's body swaying lifelessly in the wind. An unease crept over the fortress that day. Work continued and the walls were erected, but there was a subtle change. Conversations were hushed, laughter faded quickly, and every man felt the sense that something profoundly wrong was upon them. The path they had taken up the hill was paved with neat rows of cobblestones leading back to some distant highway connecting their empire to its outlying provinces. A central hall was erected, built with timber from the ash tree. The pall grew more and more pronounced, as rumors began to spread that the woman's spirit lingered on, haunting the encampment and bringing ill fortune with it. The warlord decried the rumors as barbarian superstition, but his demeanor had changed. He slept a little, his face grew haggard and worn, and, for all of his denouncements, his lieutenants noticed that he constantly checked around corners and behind himself. He startled easily, jumping and half-drawing his sword at the slightest unexpected sound. They worried for his health, both the health of his body and that of his mind. One morning, he did not come forth from his chambers in the central hall. When his lieutenants cautiously entered the room, they found their commander swaying gently by a length of rope from the ashen rafters, his face dark and his eyes lifeless. If you enjoy the Wayfarer's Compendium, the best way to support the podcast is to share it with your friends. Thank you for listening.